Your favorite band's about to play a sold-out show, and you definitely got tickets. And drinks. Now hurry and make it back to your spot. Pass this person and that person about 20 more. Ooh, watch out for feet. Hey. Just keep going. A little further. Oh, there's your friend. Over here. Right where you want to be. Close enough to see the set list. And they're definitely playing your song. When you're with Amex, it's not if it's going to happen, but when. American Express. Don't live life without it. In the week that saw Lucy Fallon leave Coronation Street, Line of Duty end in an 85-minute shocker, and ITV's The Bay get a second series, this is Series Linked. I'm Emma Bullymore from the TV Times, and this, as always, is Mark Jeffries from The Mirror. Hiya, Jeffers. Hey, how's it going? Good, thank you. Well, on this week's episode of the podcast dedicated to everything on the box that's both on and in demand, we speak to Victoria Derbyshire about Madonna, Brexit, and getting her kit off for cancer. Taskmaster's back with a brand new bunch of celebrities, and Emma Willis chooses her box set to watch before you die. You're listening to Series Linked. The podcast for TV fans by TV fans. So, Jeffers, how are you doing? Yeah, I'm really good. I've had a few days off. I've caught up on my TV. I feel re-energised and raring to go. I, I would have thought that you would be a morning because Line of Duty has now ended. It's one of your favourite programmes. We all love it. What did you make of that long extended finale? Well, first off, I did overall, I really liked it. I think a lot of people did. Uh, the figures are in 9.6 million peak. Obviously, that's huge. Biggest show of the year. There were a few little holes in it, a few flaws in it for me, but I'll start with the positives. I love the interrogation of Ted Hastings. It was Hastings against Carmichael, played by Anna Maxwell Martin. thought, in general, those scenes were really, really good. We also had sort of a big presence of Jill Bigelow, the lawyer who sort of came out as a real baddie towards the end. Sitting there in a polyester purple shirt. I just, I thought that was bad. Bad choice by wardrobe, but carry on. Bad eyebrows as well. I always <laughs> look at her, I just think I want to, you know, there's there's more that could be done with Jill, isn't there? She could look a lot better. But that, aside from that, I, I, you know, I think she's a great character and the actress who plays her is really good. And I thought all those interrogation scenes were brilliant. You had AC12, the other two of them coming to the rescue at the last minute. That all felt good. That all felt dramatic. Kate had a brilliant line. Of course. Yeah, Kate told the AC3 officer to stop making a tit of herself, which is probably the line of the episode. And, and she also had some really good lines at the end where she sort of arrested Jill Bigelow. So I thought all of that was great. But it didn't really end perfectly or didn't have to sort of complete and, and tie up all the loose ends. That was, I think, the issue for a lot of people. The H question was sort of left unanswered and almost extended out. So we've now got four people instead of one. And um, I think a lot of people found that odd. I really didn't like the Morse code idea that Dot had given a sort of seemed secret... very tenuous, didn't it? It seemed, to me, it seemed a little contrived, the idea that everyone would have missed this quite key element and that he would sort of use his hand rather than sort of using one of his last breaths to say something. That was the bit that I had a bit of an issue with. There was also a few other bits that people found odd. Ted's laptop, he goes and destroys the laptop and then he says that's over him watching porn, which seems a bit of a drastic move. And well, I think that's got to be a lie, right? Surely that's going to come in the next series. He just just wouldn't happen and it doesn't really fit with the character I don't know, I found that all really quite odd I, I did wonder whether that's deliberately left open and, and it did seem to be left in the sense that could Ted still be you know bent could he could he be the fourth person I think that's something they're going to play on although I must admit we've had such a big series of 
is Hastings bent or not? I feel like we need to move on from that in the next series personally. Also, his when he visited Lee Banks in prison, that wasn't completely explained. So there were a few sort of inconsistencies, if you like. It wasn't like it ended and I'm here today sort of really chuffed because I feel like it was perfect. I actually feel personally that the series probably peaked in the middle, probably when uh, Stephen Graham's character got killed off. I thought that episode was really shocking. We were all sort of talking about that the next day, probably the next week, and it, it really seemed to peak there for me this series. What, what did you think? I agree with you. I think it kind of fizzled out a bit. I thought there was no need for it to be an extended length episode, actually. I think you could have done everything you needed to do within the hour. The problem was that we knew that Jill Bigelow was going to be bent in some way. No one trusted her. Everyone on social mm. media was suspecting her. No one really believed that Ted was going to be bent. Oh, I don't think, anyway. So, therefore, it was lacking a few surprises. Stephen Graham brought all the best bits to this year's series. And I kept thinking, oh, if only that interrogation scene had been with him, how brilliant would it have been? And I know people enjoyed it anyway and the Animax Martin was really well received. But I thought for a series that had been so huge and got us all talking so much, the finale was a bit of a damp squib, to be honest. I think it lacked a big shock, didn't it, as you say, because perhaps the viewers were too good. But Jill, uh, who's played by Polly Walker, I should say as well, who's brilliant, I think... Everyone suspected that she was twisted or evil or, you know, there was something not quite right She was far right too nice. It yes. was weird. And she also seemed a little bit too devious to be completely straight. And so that wasn't the big, you know, when Vicky sort of said anything you said were used in evidence, there was a, a bit of a shock because it's like, oh, it is her. But, but it wasn't a total shock as you get with some other big twists. There wasn't a huge twist in that last episode. And as, as you rightly say, I think it was 85 minutes, probably 60 minutes of that, the interrogation, which I did enjoy between Hastings and Carmichael. But you could probably cut that down by 15, 20 minutes, make it an hour, make it really tight. And people would have been sort of desperate for more. Whereas I feel like I can sort of breathe and sort of absorb it all now. And then I will obviously look forward to the next series, but perhaps not quite in the way that I was expecting to. There's not like one or two things that I want to find out. I feel like there's lots of unanswered questions. My real worry is that I don't want another whole series of, oh, it's who's Ted Ben. Yeah, yeah. And, who, and also, yeah, who's who's the fourth H kind of thing, yeah. Yeah, I totally agree with you. What did you think about the scene in The Ladies Lose where she got stabbed in the hand? That, to me, felt like an attempt at a last-minute twist that, again, turned out to be quite disappointing because it was all over as quickly as it had begun. Well, that sort of started from the text message that Jill sent as well. And I, we've had that before with the, we had the text message. So it just felt like that was sort of something that had been done before. I didn't feel like it was that shocking. Again, there was something about that character, the ginger-haired policewoman, I, I didn't sort of wholly trust anyway. And so I wasn't overly surprised. I guess it was supposed to show sort of Jill's tenacity and the fact that she was stabbed in the hand and she still kept going. And sort of, you know, it eventually sort of, the day got saved and you perhaps thought for a minute she was going to get killed. But there's no real warmth towards Jill. It's not like I would have been that upset if she'd have been killed. So it didn't add as much as perhaps they had hoped maybe it was adding when they did it. So Line of Duty, still brilliant, but we're hoping that the next series moves it all along a little bit. The other thing, I would, the point I would make, there's been some quotes the last week or two with some people saying, oh, it could go on forever. I personally don't feel that way. It's a brilliant series, one of my favourite of all time. But it'll get to the point where it's going to get more and more contrived, you know, Ted now is, is quite a flawed character. They've said at the end of the episode that he, main, he keeps his job after some disciplinary. Well, you know, there's only a limit to how many times it can be realistic that all these people can keep keep their job. They're shooting people, they're sort of falling foul of the law or certainly quite close to it. And I think in reality, probably the next series, one of Ace's 12 probably has to die or something like that. I, I don't think it can go on forever. I think a couple more series, any more than that. And there's a danger that it's going to become too ridiculous in the way they can all get away with everything and all survive and go through all these situations and, and sort of no one of the key characters dies. And I think people want a proper ending as well. If you let it go on and on and forever, 
you never get any kind of resolution. So hopefully, I don't know what do you reckon, one more series, two more series? Well, it's commissioned for one more. I, I just think off the back of the ratings, as I say, the biggest show of the year, I think they'll try and milk another couple. But Jed's also got a right bodyguard. So I think we're going to be in for a long wait. I think it's going to be a year, year plus, probably 18 months till we see Line of Duty again, at, at the very least. Well, let's talk about some brand new drama. Chernobyl is coming to Sky Atlantic. Jeffers, kind of set this up for us. This is on Sky Atlantic and Now TV, Tuesdays at nine o'clock, also on demand. And it's a five-part dramatisation of the story of the nuclear accident at the Chernobyl nuclear power plant, which happened April 26th in 1986. One of the worst made catastrophes in history. Got to say from the off, this is not one to watch if uh, you've just been dumped or, <laughs> you know, your cat's just died. This is pretty grim stuff. Obviously, the real in real life, it was horrific. And, you know, this doesn't pull any punches. This is a pretty dark drama. It's five parts. And I don't think, obviously, at the end, there's going to be any happy endings either. The first 15, 20 minutes are up there with sort of some of the grimmest TV I've watched for a long time. And I think that might put a few people off and, and some people might even turn off. But what I would say is stick with it because there's more of a human side that comes out and I do think it gets a lot better. Jared Harris is the main actor. Um, you'd know him as Lane Price probably from Mad Men. He's like a professor and he's an expert on on sort of nuclear science. It's sort of his advice that they're trying to sort of save the day after the accident happens. And there's also some sort of action from two years from when the accident happened so but it mainly centers on the rescue operation after sort of the nuclear explosions happened and jesse buckley's in it as well there's lots of good talent in there actually and it's really well made what i liked about it is that obviously you know what this is about you know it's about this horrendous uh, catastrophe and i thought that was going to be at the end i thought we we're going to spend all this time getting to know the characters and building up to it you have to wait till episode five to see it But we're straight in there. Basically, within the first five minutes, we are in the turbine hall. We're watching this all unfold. And to me, I found that actually really commendable. that They just got straight on with it. That is so rare these days, actually, in telly. So I really enjoyed that part of it. It is grim. It is really grim. But guess what? There's loads of grim TV on at the moment. You know, people quite happy to watch all sorts of really dark things. In fact, they often say, oh, isn't it great that this series is darker than the the one before? So I think there is a market for it. Um, And it's something I knew absolutely nothing about, really. You know, it's such a famous incident that it's really interesting to go behind the scenes of that and see... You know, think about the human side of it, of the people that were actually in there on that night. I think that's a really good point. People of our age or, or certainly anyone younger than us will know very little about this. It happened in 1986, which is, is a fair while ago now. And I sort of knew of the accident and, and the catastrophe, but that's about all I knew, to be perfectly honest. And there is very much a human side in this. There's also some sort of people who who tried to come to the rescue, sort of giving up their lives and, and going in and trying to stop it getting even worse. Uh, you, you learn from this drama that things could have been a whole lot worse if it wasn't for certain people there at the time. And yeah, you really, you're sort of, by, I watched two episodes now and by the end of that, you're really sort of rooting for the people who are there. There is still this sort of underlying grimness and the prospect of many more deaths and many more illness, but but it, it does feel a bit more upbeat, certainly by the second episode. And I'm definitely going to carry on and, and watch all five. I th- think it's really well made. The casting is all really excellent. And as I say, it is bleak, but there is some sort of positivity, certainly by the time you get to the second hour, I think. Fantastic. We're going to talk about something totally different now. This is Netflix's sort of latest big release called Dead to Me. It's so different. But go on, Jeff, tell us a little bit about it. There's only really two characters I think you need to know in this. Uh, There's a widow called Jen Harding, played by Christina Applegate, and another sort of widow called Judy Howe, and she's played by Linda Cardellini. And basically, it's about their friendship. They meet at sort of a grief support group 
and it's about their relationship and quite it ends up being quite a twisted relationship there's a lot of lies going on and they're both supposedly lost their husbands and that's sort of the starting off point it's a little bit like Desperate Housewives that's a comparison of tone yeah and it's as you say compared to the last thing we've talked about it's much lighter I've seen it described as a dark comedy but I've got to be honest I wasn't laughing a great deal I think some people are going to be like this what did you I loved it I absolutely loved it. There's sort of minute pre-titles that totally sets up Christina Applegate's character. She has a neighbour knock at her door who's all sickly sweet and gives her a lasagna. It's kind of in the... It is the style of Desperate Housewives, Wisteria Lane. And she cuts her down to size. And from that moment, I'm just like, I'm absolutely on your side. And much like actually the best leading women, she's so kind of... Not perfect, which I I know sounds simplistic, but I'll explain. If you look at someone like Carrie Bradshaw, one of the most popular female characters of all time, she is selfish and annoying and rude and self-absorbed. And yet you feel like she's your best friend because she's she's like a real person. It's easy if you have a widow as your central character to make her you're absolutely perfect and lovely in every single way. And she's not. She's quite snappy and you see the sort of the reality of her grief and yet it's not depressing. It's not it's not dark particularly, really. You know, that is you see the truth of that situation, but then you see how she's sort of interacting out and about and with other women and she's getting really kind of arsy at this bereavement circle and she's so annoyed with everyone. Um, and I just thought it was a really interesting take. I'm sold on that kind of writing style, on that character. And I, the twist that you get at the end of that episode, I think, is quite predictable. I saw that coming. But I still want to be in those characters' company and I still think it's going to develop in a really sort of interesting direction. So I was really keen. I'm less keen, if I'm honest, but I think it's an easy watch and it's I think it's, it's 10 parts for sure. I think they're all about half an hour, so you, you can whip for it quite quickly. I think the two leading uh, actors, that they're both clearly great actors and particularly the Jen Harding character you're talking about, that's a strong character and I think that works. is fully formed. But I don't think they've got that much to work with in terms of the script. I feel like the person who, who's done this has definitely watched Desperate Housewives maybe two or three times and there's a lot of stuff that feels like it's been done before. I thought the gay character that works with Jen Hunnam was very cliched gay character and Jen's kids are a bit cliched. So I think if you like it, you're going to like it for those two lead characters who, who are good and both the actors are, are brilliant at that. But I find bits of it a little bit cliched. And another thing that happens is uh, Judy moves in with Jen's family quite quickly. That happened very quickly. I moved in with some girlfriends pretty quickly. But this is this takes about sort of 24 hours before she's moving in with all her bags and that. So, But that's the genius of things like Desperate Housewives. That the things that happen in Desperate Housewives are ridiculous. You know, there's you know that you don't really believe that they're likely to happen. There's so many murders on that lane, you know, all that kind of stuff. But it, the characters are truthful. And I'm happy with that. I'm happy for a slightly bubblegum world, but actually for the characters to have some truth about them. And I think there is a massive gap for something like Desperate Housewives. I'm not saying this is necessarily it. I don't think it's as good as Desperate Housewives. But I think there is an audience for that, for that kind of slightly glossy yet sort of... It's either... It seems to me you can either have a glossy drama or you can have it be really well made and have proper characters. It's not that many that do both and I think that that, there is an audience for that Yeah I totally agree I think there will definitely be an audience for this and um, I'm not sure I'm necessarily the target audience anyway there's just a few little problems I had with it but as we've said before if you you like a drama what you tend to do is you tend to go with it and like you say you you put up with those things or or, you know, not every drama has to be 100% realistic anyway. And I think this is deliberately set out to be a bit sort of OTT in places anyway. And That's uh, it. It's not actually a problem. Whereas, for instance, Bits in the Bay, the ITV crime drama that's just been recommissioned, 
there are bits I'm like, you you don't want us to take that with a pinch of salt. You want us to feel that this is really, really realistic. And there are a couple of points where it's like, mm, I don't believe you. Whereas I think with this, they don't really care if they're really using and exploiting coincidences. I don't think it matters so much. That's a good point. I think when it's something like the Bay, perhaps when it's criminal dramas and those type of things, it has to be those things you can't really get big parts wrong oh you know they, they can't possibly be arrested like that way or that wouldn't be said in court those things it's hard to deviate from whereas the things that i'm that i don't necessarily like about this they're just small they're things that if you really like the drama you just let let them go anyway they're not vital to the storyline at all and less depressing than Chernobyl anyway 100 percent less yes So the other day we caught up with Victoria Derbyshire. Now, of course, you always see Victoria on telly on BBC Two and the BBC News Channel every morning at 10 o'clock with her new show. But she's also returning to ITV's The All New Monty, which did really well uh, about celebrities taking their clothes off to raise awareness of cancer. Here to tell us everything about it and much more besides, this is our chat with Victoria Derbyshire. So, Victoria, when we saw you last year, it was quite a journey for you being on this show and a couple of times you weren't sure if you were going to do it. And now here you are, you're always tweeting about it, picking up awards for it, and you're doing another show. Tell us about the experience from the beginning when you first signed up to being on this series now. I was reluctant at first because, although it's a cause that is really, really close to my heart, I just, I didn't know if I could, you know, get involved in something fun and noisy and that involved taking your clothes off and do my day job as a journalist. Obviously, we do really serious stories. And then, you know, I thought about it and I thought, I want to do this because I care about breast cancer. I care about awareness raising. And if we can get a message out through primetime telly to millions of women that you need to check your boobs, then that is a good thing. So it involved eight of us, all of whom, you know, had some link to cancer, getting together learning a routine choreographed by the incredible Ashley Banjo and basically derobing as we did the final performance in a theatre in Sheffield in front of 2,000 people. And But you kind of, because like you say, you are a serious journalist and when your name's on that lineup, we thought, oh my God, that's really adding some gravitas to the programme. You know, Victoria's doing it. This did isn't, you? Yeah, I did. Like, you know, this okay. isn't just reality stars. You know, mm-hmm. this is someone proper doing it. But you you did have a couple of moments during that series where you thought, mm, I'm not sure. Colleen had to talk you around a couple of times, didn't she? Yeah, I mean, there were, you know... I finished breast cancer treatment three years ago. Most of the time I don't think about it. But obviously being involved in this programme, it forces you to remember bits about treatment and how you fell and side effects. And quite often I cry when I think about that stuff. You know, it's not great to lose your hair. It's not amazing to have a mastectomy. And so having those conversations with a strong group of women who I'd got to know really well... You just end up opening up and sharing experiences and sometimes I would just burst into tears. So it was more that emotional side than the actual stripping off? There was the emotional side of of remembering bits of me having treatment. But the challenge of being on a stage... I mean, I was with Colleen Nolan. She was in one of the the biggest girl bands ever. Michelle Heaton was in Liberty X. Sarah Jane Crawford is a TV presenter. Megan McKenna is a reality star. Ruth Maddock has been on stage all her life. I've never been on stage apart from in a rubbish school play when I was 14. So even the environment of being on stage was really freaky and out of my comfort zone. And then the idea that you're going to take some clothes off was just, whoa. But obviously we all kept coming back to, look, this is just taking our clothes off in order to attract attention to a really important message and... 
in the end, I thought, blimey, I've been through breast cancer. I can bear all for a few seconds in a theatre. And so why come back this year? Because obviously it was quite daunting. Why have a second go? Because Colleen and I have become really good friends. We have such a laugh because it is so different to my day job. And just because we got the message out a year ago doesn't mean we don't need to get the message out again. You know, hopefully we'll reach a whole new audience Young women, middle-aged women, older women. The message doesn't go away. Women continue to be diagnosed with breast cancer. So I wanted to do it again. And are you able to offer support to maybe some of the first-timers this time? Does it make it easier doing it a second time? I really thought it would be way easier. (laughs) It's not as plain sailing as I thought it was going to be. Again, because, you know, this year, you know, there's Daniel Armstrong, there's Megan Barton Hansen, there's... Lisa Mafia. I mean, these are strong, attractive women, some of whom are quite a bit younger than me. And so you have all those female insecurities, which I'm sort of ashamed to say, because who cares if I'm a bit insecure about only having one breast because one was removed in surgery? At least I'm alive. But actually, I still have those insecurities, as superficial as they might sound. And one woman you haven't mentioned yet is the tennis sort of legend, Martina Navratilova. I understand during the film and you went over to her place in Miami. I think you talked to her about joining the show. Can you talk a bit about that? Well, that was an incredible experience. We realised that to have someone of her legendary status on board who's had breast cancer herself and who you wouldn't necessarily imagine to have had breast cancer, obviously sporty, healthy determine the stamina and all that sort of stuff. So Colleen and I uh, went over to where she lives in Miami and we met her and we were shitting it, I've got to be honest. <laughs> we were scared because she's... Martina Navratilova is really daunting in a good way. You know, such a legend, successful, etc., etc. And then we met her. <laughs> we were a bit like little teenage girls. It's Martina. And... and, and <laughs> You know, we hugged, said, hi, how are you? Thanks for meeting us. And then we got into her um, convertible car. And just before we got in, I was in the back seat. I said, I know it sounds really pathetic, but can I just hug you again? Because you are a legend. <laughs> <laughs> and, and obviously she hugged me. I mean, she must be used to that all the time. And I just felt really pathetic. But I did it, you know, because I'm in awe of this woman. She's amazing. And we got to know her over well, that first meeting, we got to know her a bit over a period of hours and then we played tennis with her. By that stage, oh my God, we were having such a laugh. We felt confident enough. It was me and Colleen, obviously, against her. And uh, she was knocking them over the net. And uh, I was saying, "Listen, Martina, listen. And she was saying, you're telling me to listen on a tennis court? <laughs> and Colleen was swearing at her and she was just taking it. It was so funny. And she, you know what she said, which was really interesting. She said when she takes part in any kind of project or programme, it's always her on her own. It's her being filmed, knocking a ball over and it. She said, it's so nice to have some people to bounce off, some women to have a laugh with. So it was really, it was a real eye opener into her life as well. And it just shows you how important this show is because she doesn't need to do it for, for money or for profile, any, any of the reasons you might think. No way. It's really important to her and... She doesn't really talk about her breast cancer now. It was in 2010, 2011, something like that. And she remembers the kind of female support that she had. This is what she told us from close friends, relatives and also strangers. And she felt she wanted to sort of offer that support and solidarity to anybody who might be watching the programme who's going through it right now. One of your big dress rehearsals was in Blackpool, I think. I just wondered what Martina made of Blackpool. Oh, my God, she did not know what hit her. (laughs) I mean, Colleen took her out and... 
obviously, being Colleen, she yeah. bought her a kiss me quick hat, <laughs> cowboy hat, clearly. Uh, I've no idea if Martina had ever come across one of those in her life before. And so this dress rehearsal, it was a Tuesday afternoon, it was pouring down outside. There were about 200 people in this, uh, the back of this hotel, a, a low stage, you know, really close to the audience. And we'd hidden Martina, so they did not know she was there. It was amazing. And so we do our bit first and then Martina comes out. I'm probably revealing too much, am I? But anyway, but when she walked out on stage, the crowd went wild because everyone knows Martina Navratilova. And I think she really appreciated that. After the very final performance, I said, how did it compare to being at the Centre Court of Wimbledon? She said, you know what the difference is? When I was on the Centre Court of Wimbledon, half the crowd were for me and half were against. She said, for this performance, everyone is with you. And it really made sense to me, you know? Yeah, they adored her. They loved her. I think you used um, body painting this time to maybe uh, improve people's confidence before the kind of full performance. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, we had a, a, an afternoon where there were these incredible body painting artists who painted our bodies so that it looked like you had real clothes on. I'm not really quite sure what the point was, if I'm being <laughs> really honest. Anyway, we did it. We all did it. Some found it easier than others. You know, Danielle Armstrong looked amazing. I mean, the, 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 the artists were superb. Danielle looked like she had jeans on and a crop top. She didn't. It was paint. I was not a fan of it. <laughs> Colleen was not a fan of it. We, we both went with it. I, I always, you know, in those scenarios, I feel I have, I have to explain to the person painting me, OK, the reason I look like this, I had a mastectomy, and I find it a bit challenging. And obviously, people are really nice. They're like, yeah, yeah, I've seen it all before, but you still feel you've got to explain it. Colleen, Colleen was painted purple. It looked like she had a purple shirt with black dots on. And everyone's saying, oh, my God, it looks just like a shirt. It didn't. I said, Colleen, <laughs> it looks like you've got great big purple boobs. Do not let anyone tell you any different. I think she appreciated my honesty. And were you as nervous this time just before the big performance? Or was it easier second time around? I mean, at that moment, there's still that sort of feeling of jeopardy, like, Am I really going to do this? But then it comes to it, and of course you're going to do it, because there's eight of you in total. You've worked over however many days to get this routine right, and this is the, the, the final moment, and you don't want to let anyone down. And also, at that point, you're thinking, I've got to remember the routine here. I don't want to let Ashley down either. So in a way, you're not thinking about it until the very final second, and then you just do it. Can you see yourself doing this every year now for like an annual event? I've no idea. I don't know if it'll be recommissioned. I don't know if they'd, even if it was, they would want me back. Who knows? Because it has had a massive impact, this show. Is it two women whose lives you saved with that message? Because it flashed up, well, check your boobs on the Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that show. was the last sort of frame of the programme last year and six and a half million pe people watched it. And the last frame said, ladies, check your boobs. And I had two emails um, to my programme at the BBC from... A woman in her 80s, a woman in her 50s. And the title of Margaret's email was The Real Four Monty Saved My Life. And then she just explained she checked herself the next morning. She remembered the message. She'd watched the programme. She'd laughed with us. She'd cried with us. Checked herself in the shower the next morning, found something, did the right thing, went straight to the doctors and had surgery. And the same with Marin, this other woman in her 50s. Similar thing. Watched the programme, checked herself. She's had um, a lumpectomy and she's doing all right. It's absolutely incredible that you can make that kind of difference. I know. And, that, and that's, you don't imagine that a TV programme can do that. So, you know, I'm really proud of that. I'm really proud of that. And you also did the video sort of diaries when you were going through it. I just wonder whether you think 
all this work which is sort of demystifying cancer, do you think people are generally getting better at talking about it? Definitely. I really do. And I think that's a good thing because the more you talk about it, the more you share information, the more hopefully you get people to check themselves and not leave things and make sure they go to the doctor. And also the more it, it kind of diminishes cancer. We know what it was like. People used to drop their voice and whisper and say, the big C. You couldn't say the cancer word. Actually, just talk about it and treat it like any other illness. And and in that sense, diminish it. Well, that, that's how I, that's what I wanted to do. I didn't, I didn't want to be... I didn't want to be scared, even more scared because it was cancer, you know. But you've sort of, I remember at the time because you just left Five Live and, and went to get this job and then you've got this job, you've got your own show and then you it all just kind of derailed because you were going through this. And then, but everyone felt there was so much on your journey with you and you were sort of reluctantly made it, well, not reluctantly necessarily, but made into a poster girl for this experience in a way. Did you feel you that? I was? Well, in a, in a way, I felt like I had never heard anyone be so honest about it before. And then obviously you've done the book and you've done this and it's yeah. become part of what you represent to people. Yeah. Whether you- I mean, I when I was doing those video diaries, I was doing it, I felt, as a because I'm a journalist and because it was a sort of... I'm a very open person and I thought if I can sort of approach this factually and we can put it on my programme and put it online, I was just thinking it's information sharing. I wasn't thinking of any more than that. And it was only, you know, when the first one went out and I started to get this incredible reaction from people saying, oh my God, I'm having a mastectomy and you've just taken some of the fear away for me, that I thought, okay, so this is hopefully doing some good. And now that that's all sort of out the way you're on tv every day what's it like hosting your show in as much as one minute you could be doing a really serious subject we were talking about game of thrones the other day you could be anything it's just thrown at you it must be really exhilarating i love my job i'm really lucky to do it the main reason why i love it is because i get to meet completely different people every single day from all walks of life you know from people who find themselves in the middle of a news story to politicians sports stars celebs the lot and it's that variety and the fact that it's live that I also adore. Uh, I worked on the radio for years and years and years. So anything live, I just love because you just actually you don't know what's going to happen. Every day, something unpredictable can happen. Breaking news or a guest says something controversial, daft, incredible, whatever it may be. And you just go with it, which is what I love. It's that time of day where it's not huge budgets, but you're constantly getting exclusives and, and breaking stuff. Is that a real kind of drive behind the scenes that, you know, come on, we've got to be on the, the front line of this? 100%. Yeah. I'm quite competitive. Our team is quite competitive. We've got a small budget compared to a lot of news programmes, not just at the BBC, but, you know, our rivals as well. But we've got a really fantastic, small, hungry team and we like to break stories and bring f- different stories, fresh stories to a BBC audience. Is there a dream guest you've not had yet who you'd like? Um, I mean, I would love to interview Madonna. It's never going to happen. I have tried. I've sent um, emails to her agent, you know, really long emails where I've spelled out how I grew up with Madonna and she, you know, paragraphs and paragraphs explaining why. And literally, immediately, straight back from the, from the agent, one-line email, really sorry, she's not doing anything at the moment. It's like... Oh my God, I poured my heart into that letter. <laughs> I told him which singles I bought as a 15-year-old. Didn't matter. But I, I'd love to. I'd love to. And what sort of TV do you watch when you're not sort of on the box yourself? I know you had the, a lot of the cast of Fleabag on the other week, which has been really popular. What, what else do you like watching? Line of Duty ofs. I've just... So when I talked to you, Emma, about Game of Thrones, you probably realise this, but the day before, I'd watched Ep 1 season one for the first time so I'm now in catch-up mode with that my oldest son is 15 I've started to watch 
the beginning of the first series of Line of Duty because he's now old enough to watch that kind of stuff. He loves it. So anybody who's Line of Duty fans will know the Tony Gates was season one. Amazing. I'm now into D.I. Lindsay Denton, Keely Hawes. It is absolutely brilliant. He is loving it. I love a police thriller. I, I used to love Dexter. I love The Fall. Any kind of mystery, suspense, policey, that kind of stuff. And do you get time? Are you are you constantly frantic or do you get time to sit and kick back and watch telly? I don't get much time, I've got yeah. to be honest. Mostly I watch news programmes and, you know, it's like Easter, you know, or summer holidays. I have to take a few hours out, but mostly I'm on catch-up with, you know, last night. Like, sometimes I'll set the alarm at four o'clock so I can watch last night's news night before I get up and go into work. Just because, especially with Brexit, everything is changing the whole time. So that's the thing that's taking up most of my time at the moment. I can never quite work out if for someone in your position Brexit is tedious or, or exciting to be on this biggest story of our time. Do, do you know what I mean? I think it's both. I think there were times, you know, those votes in the run-up to Christmas and, and after where, as, as a journalist, you can see that history is being made. As the delays have happened and you can feel the audience's interest wane, and I'm sure it will come back. I mean, we've had amazing audience figures throughout Brexit, really. I'm really pleased when we've got our own exclusive story and we don't have to lead on Brexit. Thanks so much for joining us, Victoria. No, it's a pleasure. Thank you. Thanks very much to Victoria. And you can see the all-new Monty on the ITV Hub. Hello, podcasters. Are you hungry? I am. Well, actually, I always am. That's why I'm doing a new series called Out to Lunch with Jay Rayner, where I take interesting people to eat in a restaurant I reckon they'll like. I've spent my career interviewing over the dinner table. You just find that people relax more when they're being pelted with fine wines and being fed ample food. So in this first series, I'll be breaking bread with a whole bunch of people, including Richard E. Grant. Like a multiple rolling gastronomic orgasm. Mel C, Stanley Tucci, Tracy Ullman and Jamie Dornan. Out to lunch with Jay Rayner. Subscribe now wherever you get your podcasts. You know you don't want to miss an episode. This Sunday sees the Durrells come to an end. And for many people, this whole series, in fact, the whole show, has been about whether Louisa and Spiro get together. Will they live happily ever after? Big question. So, Jeffers, my question to you this week is, which on-screen TV couple should have got together and stayed together? OK, I've got a couple of answers as per. Perfect. Matthew and Mary and Downton Abbey. I've, yes. moaned, I've moaned about this before. They killed off Matthew. That was the wrong decision. They should have stayed together. One of my favourite couples of all time, Betty and Don Draper in Mad Men, played by January Jones and John Hamm. Really good characters. The slight problem with this one, though, is that if if Don sort of stayed with her, we'd be about three series light, wouldn't we? Because he went on and had a number of other relationships and it, it would have messed the narrative up a lot. But I like them as a couple. But so. that's the problem, isn't it, with all these will-they-won't-they's, is that you're invested, so you're desperate for them to get together. And then once they get together, that's that's really the end of the series. Yeah, a happy ending would have probably ruined Mad Men. So, I, I, again, there's problems with that one. So I'm going to go a bit left field with my answer and I'm going to say Bert and Ernie from Sesame <laughs> Street. 
Right. Right. That, there's been a lot of... I did uh, say couple. Yeah, yeah. There's been a lot of talk about whether they are a couple or not. They share the same bed. Sesame Street have come out a few times and given sort of quite woolly statements and said, oh, no, they're not together or, what, or oh, no, they're just friends or whatever. I think in, like, 2019, it should be fine to say, like, Bert and Ernie are a couple. I think, you know, kids understand a lot more about sort of sexuality and everything now. And I think it would be a good thing for Sesame Street to say, yeah, Bert and Ernie are a couple and then they could stay together. So that's what I'd like to see. Let's talk about a bit more telly now. Uh, one of Dave's comedy staples is returning for its eighth series. Must be Dave's most successful original series. I'm talking, of course, about Taskmaster. Well, if anyone hasn't seen it, Jeffers, can you just explain briefly what happens on Taskmaster? It's a group of celebs, basically, and they are set tasks by Alex Horn and Greg Davies, and they're awarded points for the tasks. But it's not a very serious programme, yeah, as you can silly. imagine. There's lots of the comedians are the contestants. They, they, a lot of the time, try and do stuff uh, almost a bit like on QI, I suppose, deliberately getting stuff wrong or um, deliberately trying to get laughed with, with what they produce. And it, it works really well because I think, one, you've got a different lineup of contestants who are comedians each time. And so you get to see their personalities a bit like on Strictly. And also, they don't ever really, as far as I know, repeat any tasks. And so it feels fresh and new um, every series. And it's the same all over again. This time we've got Ian Sterling, Joe Thomas, Lou Sanders, Paul Singer and Sean Gibson. Sean's the best. Sean is very she's good. The, she's the top billing there. She's the one that's going to make you watch, right? I mean, I love Lou Sanders. She'd be new to a lot of people. She's sort of like if Tracy Emin, the artist, was a comedian. That's Lou, I think. That's my <laughs> description of her. Joe Thomas from The Inbetween is a lot of people know. He's a very nervy character. I've heard him speak on a lot of podcasts, actually, and he always sounds a bit nervous. And he's exactly the same doing his tasks. He seems almost like um, uncomfortable, and, but that also makes it funny. And um, Ian Sterling's the voice of Love Island. And he seems to, from the first episode, anyway, have some sort of aggro with with Greg Davies and that, that tension and, and them messing around works quite well. And I, I love this. I think it's a great show. Um, I think it's sort of pretty bulletproof for a lot more series. I don't, don't know what you think. I just, I like it. There's nothing to dislike. I think it's fun. I think it works well. It's tight. They've, they've really come up with something good. But people are evangelical about this series. They're obsessed with it. They can't wait for it to come back. And to me, it's just something that if I come in from the pub and it's on, great, fine. Yeah, I'll watch that. That'll do. Just like I would watch a repeat of what I lie to you. I would watch an episode of QI. I I just don't really understand why people love it so much. I don't know if you can shed any light on this. No, I I understand where, where you're coming from. I think it's just solid for what it does and it... Uh, uh, yeah, I wouldn't necessarily stay in to watch it, but if it's on, I'll watch it. Or, you know, you might series link it and watch it at your own leisure. I just find it a really easy watch, I suppose. There's a lot of stuff, other stuff we've talked about today where it involves a bit of a lot of thinking or a bit of investment. And you couldn't say, let's say you missed an episode, you would have to go back. With Taskmaster, you know, there's none of that really. It's just on, you just sort of sit down and flop yourself in front of the sofa and almost, you can almost, you know, switch off. And I can find myself sort of relaxing watching it. There's no real tension. It's, it's just an easy watch for me. And that's the simplicity of it. And that, that's the beauty of it for me as well. You can see that the celebs are really pleased to be on there. They're really relaxed. They kind of... And it's it's quite a good showcase for them, actually, because they have to be imaginative, be funny, come up with ways to respond to the tasks that sort of show themselves off, really. So it's actually quite interesting to see what they decide to come up with. I get all of that and I like it. But if I miss an episode, fine. 
I don't, I don't need to go back and rewatch. I think it's actually quite competitive to get on the show now. I mean, some of these names are bigger than others, clearly, but it, it is a showcase, you know, whether it's for other panel shows on sort of the BBC or Channel 4 or whatever, or even to, to perhaps get your show out, or, you know, when you're doing a stand-up tour to get, sell a few more tickets. So I think it's a, it's a good show to be on from their point of view, and, and that's why they're able to get a decent and varied lineup. And obviously also good to see that, you know, it's not all blokes, which is the case on some panel shows on other channels. Yeah, more of that, please. Uh, so let's talk about, that's, that's a nice link into what we're talking about next. We're talking about Knock Down the House, which is, it's out now on Netflix. It's the most incredible documentary. This is about something that neither of us knew that much about. Maybe we should have done. Maybe that's to our shame. Jeff has explained a little bit. Well, I think it's a problem we've got here in the UK as well. It goes behind the scenes of, of four really determined women and they're sort of challenging big money politicians in the 2018 race for Congress. As I say, I think in Britain as well, we struggle to have as many women MPs as we should. I think it's probably even a bigger problem in the States. And also the politics seems to be sort of taken over by these sort of middle class, uh, very white, middle aged men. And, and it's all about sort of a challenge to sort of take on this this old world, I suppose. This sort of key person for me was Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and she is fighting in the Bronx for a seat. Um, she's up against a guy called Joe Crowley. He is the fourth highest ranking Democrat member of the House of Representatives when it happens, when the sort of documentary follows these these four women. And it's about their sort of campaigns which start off from zero. You know, they've got no no money. They've got no sponsorship. A lot no of experience. It, yeah, no experience. Alexandra is, is a waitress. You know, she's she's not done public speaking and, and they're all sort of working class people. Take It's almost a sort of David versus Goliath type situation situation and it, it's really fascinating to see how they get on I, I don't want to reveal too much about what happens in the end but I was crying my eyes out by the end of this I just thought it was so moving and so affecting because they're saying that American politics is dominated not just by men but by men who are lawyers you know men who have a very specific life experience and life background and, and they also seem to have a lot of tie-ins with companies and they get a lot of their funding from companies that they then sort of help whilst in power so it, it all, it's all very dodgy to be honest and people say that the guy that Alexandria was up against Joe Crowley doesn't even live in the no, area exactly. but he's getting by and saying well I'm tackling Trump so if you're a Democrat and you don't like Trump, you need to keep voting for me, but ignoring local issues. So it's a really interesting race politically uh, and really just kind of, I don't know, I think people are quite against quotas and, and for, for various good reasons. But when you watch something like this, it is really interesting to see how monochrome American politics is and probably our politics as well. It's a really interesting project, full stop, to try and just inject some life and some diversity into politics. And there is, you know, you follow it through. I can't, I don't want to spoil the results because I really want you to go and watch it, but it's worth spending your time on, I would say. It definitely is. And I don't feel like there's too much like this um, out there. I can't remember any, certainly any British documentary like this. And it follows it right from the very sort of grassroots when they register in to become a candidate, right through to the results. And there are, as you say, without spoiling it, there sort of mixed results for the four women standing. It's a great thing. And uh, yeah, you said you cried your eyes out. I, I might have shed a little tear as well for oh, this, which, which is very unusual. So yeah, I think it it's really interesting. It's really informative. I must admit, I know nothing about US politics, but I would imagine even if you know a little bit there's going to be a lot of new stuff in and a lot of the behind the scenes footage is great as well watching these candidates sort of grow in confidence and almost grow as people and, and you also get sort of their backstory about where they've come from um, and sort of you know the inequality they're tackling and, and yeah I think it's a great watch It's time once again to add to the list of box sets to watch before you die 
Each week, one of our favourite faces from the telly tells us a must-see series. Now, last week, we were very happy that Carl Pilkington chose The Royal Family. Brilliant series. This week, it's the turn of presenter Emma Willis. Here is her box set to watch before you die. Hi, I'm Emma Willis. My box set to watch before you die is Peaky Blinders. It's delicate, Mr Shelby. Concerns the factory down the road at the BSA. Rumours get started. Rumours that there was a robbery. It has got the best cast, characters, sets and costume that I've ever seen in a drama. We will take them before last night's beer. Every gun, every bullet will be brought to me for inspection. I'm looking for Thomas Shelby. Never heard of him. So, Peaky Blinders, you a fan of this one, Jeffers? Do you know what? I feel quite guilty that I've not really got into this. Yeah, and listening to listening to Emma talk about it, though, I feel like this might be a good one for me for the summer and for other people, actually, because what tends to happen in the summer is we don't get much decent drama. And this is four series so far, so I feel like it's manageable. You can, you know, you can watch it probably in a month or a few weeks if you, if you get really into it. And basically, it's set in Birmingham after World War One. It's a bit of a gangster type thing, and and I think it will appeal to a lot a lot of people if if they haven't watched it already. Um, it's on Netflix at the moment, and it obviously stars Killian Murphy who plays Tommy Shelby and he's sort of the gang leader and he is up against a detective called Chester Campbell who's played by Sam Neill and it's sort of those two they're the sort of two main sort of rivals I suppose and it's loosely based on a real gang called Peaky Blinders from the 19th century they're an urban youth gang who were active in the 1890s and they used to sew razor blades into their flat caps hence there you the go name. hence the name yeah. I've watched bits of this before I've never really got into it but I know people who love it absolutely you know get obsessed with it and it is beautiful it's really stylized and the cinematography of it is fantastic and it's a real sort of it's a piece of escapism and it is a bit dark but it's you know it's worth sort of immersing yourself in so good one from Emma there there I think and yeah the good news for Emma also is they started filming series 5 last September I think it's in the can though so I would expect it to be on series 5 before the end of the year fantastic well there'll be another box set to watch before you die next week but thanks to Emma for that one she'll be back on ITV with The Voice Kids this summer and also Emma Willis Delivering Babies that fantastic midwife series that is back on W later this year We're nearly out of time for this week's episode, Sob. But as ever, we need to scan across our EPGs, have a little bit of a guess about what we'll be talking about, not just next week, but also next month and next year. Mark Jeffries, this is your moment. Hit me up next week. Next week, I'm going to first of all talk about Sliced. And this is on day. They've got really big hopes for it. It's a new comedy set in a sort of pizza takeaway. Their pizza delivery drivers are the main characters. It's going to be stripped on three nights from May the 15th. I also want to say that finally we're going to have the start of years and years, this big new BBC drama with Emma Thompson. And I think we're going to talk about that more next week, but there's, I've got real high hopes for that. Oh yeah, I've had a sneak preview and it's so good. Right, what should we be keeping an eye on next month? Next month is the start of Emily Atak's Adulting on W. It's a four-part series with the I'm a Celeb runner-up. She's looking at big life questions for people who are sort of approaching 30. We've also got the British Soap Awards on June the 1st. And I think that's going to be interesting this year because we've got all these people leaving Corrie. There's talk of an EastEnders resurgence. The speeches might actually be interesting for a change. I think it could, could be interesting. Good stuff. And next year? Next year, we've got the second series of Liar. It's just started filming. There's a few pictures around of Joanne Froggett. And also, we're going to have a new character because we've seen some pictures out of Catherine Kelly. She is joining as D.I. Karen Renton. Don't know much more than that at the moment, but... I think, uh, yeah, if it's not on by the end of the year, I think it's probably going to be early next year. And I'm, I'm quite looking forward to that. 
Lots for us to keep an eye on there then. So that's all we've got time for. This has been the Series Linked podcast. If you've enjoyed it, and obviously we hope you've loved it, please be sure to leave a five-star rating and a review. It'll really help us out. And make sure you're subscribed as well so the next episode is ready and waiting for you when it drops next Tuesday. For now, though, bye-bye. Bye. Membership fees apply after free trial. Cancel any time. Can I be real with you for a second? That goal you have to exercise and eat better? You really can do it, but nobody is going to do it for you. Nobody is going to push you out of bed to work out. Nobody is going to make you eat better. But here's the thing. Nobody has to, because you can do it if you have the right tools and a community that cares about helping you get results. And that's us, Beachbody. Two and a half million people, each doing the Beachbody program that fits our own goals. Over 80 to choose from. Some that take just 20 minutes a day. Nutrition plans that teach you how to eat healthy and still enjoy food. What we all have in common is we know it's not easy, so we help each other. It's as convenient as your TV or laptop, but you need to decide that you're worth it. That's why I'm inviting you to try our amazing Beachbody fitness and nutrition programs. Let us help you succeed. Here's Al. Go to Beachbody.com to claim your free membership and start feeling great.